Hello, and thanks for downloading this latest episode of the C-Suite podcast being produced in partnership with Future Brand. My name's Ben Bland, and we're here to talk about the Future Brand Country Index. Just like brands, the positive or negative perceptions of a country can influence people's decisions in choosing how they interact with them as places to visit, to live in, do business, or invest in. Now in its second decade, Future Brands Country Index ranks countries according to how they're perceived across a whole range of factors, from value system and quality of life to business potential, security and tourism. Topping the list is Japan, also making the top three, Norway in second place and Switzerland in third. The US and the UK have fallen out of the top 10 but still make the top 20. With me to talk about the index, we have John Tipple, who is the Global Chief Strategy Officer at Future Brand, Rowan Williams, Creative Lead at Panasonic Design London, and also with contributions from Conrad Bird, Director of the Great Britain Campaign at the Department of International Trade. And let's start off with a simple question. Where is the power and value in a country brand? John. The answer to that is, um, where's the power and value in any brand so when for example you know you think about Nespresso you think of the intangible associations of luxury but you also think of the quality of the coffee when you think about Bentley you think about luxury you think about history you think about heritage but you also think about modernity and 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 the thrill of driving and it's the same with countries I mean countries are places where people are being uh, invited to spend their time and money and as such when you think of individual countries what comes to mind And, and and the ability to have a combination of that intangible, exciting perception, but also the real-world experience that that delivers on that, is the same. And I think great countries like Japan, Germany, all the you know the countries we're going to, I guess, talk about, are able to really balance those two, just like any other brand. And Rowan, where do you see the common factors in the countries that have done well in the rankings? Yeah, I think when you look at sort of the top five, there's a very consistent sort of aesthetic or a very consistent approach that these these countries have they all have a very uh, inherent culture that is very understandable by the everyday person there's a very sort of unique element to each of those cultures you look at japan there's sort of this way of living of minimalism it's sort of a in some ways it's quite cliche but it creates a very clear image in someone's mind of what that country is you look at sweden you look at denmark there's sort of this affinity to uh, scandinavian design to the Hega movement so actually people have a very, very clear understanding or a unique understanding of, of what these countries are. But how does a country then use what you two have just described there to to benefit, to, to drive uh, increases in business, to create better uh, perception of government, to increase tourism, to, to harness culture? How do they use that? What are the ways of actually taking that knowledge and applying it? I, th- I think what's really interesting in that is the one difference I'd say that between country brands and brands is sometimes they're more organic, sometimes they're less engineered, sometimes they have just emerged over time. But the, that doesn't mean to say they can't be created and recreated. And I think that if you look at um, the way that some countries are leading these, these days, they're not, they haven't necessarily planned it, that just a formula has emerged that people are finding attractive right now. And I think the exciting thing about this type of study is it allows big countries to understand how some of the more successful countries are able to to, to create this code and copy it. So the US, Britain, G7 countries that do have this ability to want to change the way they're perceived through 
the way they appeal to tourists, the way they appeal to students, the way they appeal to companies wanting to come and set up in these places can be created by copying some of the brand, the, some of the countries rather that are leading in the world. Whereas I think brands classically can be a little bit more engineered. So let's just hear from Conrad Bird, the director of the Great Britain campaign, about how he has gone about branding a country. I've been running the Great Britain campaign for the last uh, seven or eight years, and I've really seen how joining up a country's complete offering, uh, its education, its tourism effort, its cultural effort, its business and its FDI efforts under one brand and nation brand can be extraordinarily powerful because it means actually that they can trade off each other. You know, tourists, uh, students come to the UK not just for education but actually for what the UK can offer culturally. We know also that students who uh, come to the UK and have a great experience here become the investors of the future. So within that category of a nation brand, we can promote the entire UK to our target audiences and the values between those uh, particular audiences really pay off in the long term. And that's how we've seen the great brand uh, enjoying such success. Now, that said, in this year's uh, Future Brand Index, the UK has fallen seven places. It's just about in the top 20, but only just. Um, What do you think they've done wrong that's caused them to fall? A brand Britain, and I'm talking about Britain as a brand, has done more or less everything wrong. Uh, It's declined across the board. Um, they haven't been paying attention. The, the country uh, doesn't have a, a clear sense of its role in the world right now. And the experience of it, from everything from p- value for money, perceptions around tolerance, um, the polarisation of politics, are very likely contributing to an overall perception of Britain of a country that's less attractive in a world where there's lots of options. But for a, a country that runs as a democracy, there are some factors beyond their control, political change, reputational fallout from that. So what could a country do then to safeguard its, its brand and its image when it is grappling with factors that it has no idea which direction they will go in? I mean, I, th- I think there are gold standard countries. I mean, there are gold standard countries in, in the survey, like, for example, like Japan, which in contrast to Britain has gone up on everything. And they've attended to everything that people associate with them in terms of why they exist and the purpose of the country and its focus and ambition and the experience of it has lived up to that. They've done incredibly well on things like tourism. They've been able to, you know, move away from just being associated with technology to being associated with culture, to being associated with uh, food. And that's created a, a, a fresh appraisal of Japan. But if you look across the countries that are all doing well, Norway, Switzerland, Places that perhaps don't come to mind straight away, but these countries have, 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 I think, if you're not going to be good on everything, be good on something. So Norway is very strong on social democracy. Uh, Switzerland is very, very strong for having a very powerful origin. It's known for stability. Um, But they, they don't just stand for that. They attend to a broader set of attributes that make the place strong more broadly. Are there any in the list that you were surprised did not fare better? China, for me. Um, Yeah, I I think sort of on initial thoughts here, you would think China would would perform higher in in that list. However, this sort of shift of people's aspirations moving towards sort of traditionally hardcore technology to a shift in people's aspirations for lifestyle and culture. I think people don't necessarily have an aspiration for Chinese culture. I think people still have this aspiration for Japanese culture, or they still have a very clear understanding of Germanic culture. I think when you're sort of looking at this from a creative point of view, from a design point of view, you've got a very clear understanding of what German design is. You've got a very clear understanding of what Japanese design is and and culture. But I don't think if you would say someone, what is 
Chinese design. It would particularly have a, a very high regard or high aspiration or even something that people could quite put their finger on of exactly what China is. And I think that's also the, a little bit of the problem what Britain's going through at the moment and what touched before. There's no real clear vision of what Britain is and is going to be. I think that's interesting. I mean, I, I mean China is, cares about its public image, its global image. And I think that bearing in mind its ability to focus on things it really cares about, I think they've let things like, you know, the environment and, and pollution, and they've let things like human rights slightly dominate their agenda at a time when they've been creating some of the most exciting new companies in the world in, in lots of categories. I mean, in our own Future Brand Index, there was a, a Maltai is very, very high in, in, in premium spirits. And they're strong in banking, they're strong in insurance. So they've got these powerful brands that people respect, but the actual country hasn't come through. Other countries that have excited and been kind of interesting to me is the kind of arrival of the Eastern European countries, you know, the, the so-called shirts, as we call them, you know, Slo- Slovakia shirts, you know, it's the new bricks, new bricks, Ben. So, you know, Slovakia, Hungary, uh, Romania, even Turkey, you know, the, the, the usual narrative we get, is, you know, is, is doesn't seem to belie people's perceptions, the people we speak to are international travellers. I mean, these are people that go places, not people that sit at home and read the papers. And what we see is we see, you know, a place like Romania, which has endless amounts of heritage sites, uh, becoming much more appealing to people. Slovakia is a place where brands like Volkswagen and Kia are investing and they're growing up their reputation for, for, for production and origin brand and, and producing quality goods. But all of these countries have really strong cultural heritage associations as well for food and the arts and crafts and all the rest of it. And those brands have really excited me this year. Mm. I think, yeah, to your, to your point, these sort of Eastern European countries as well, they, they are becoming points of aspiration to collaborate with to work with, especially within sort of the tech industry as well. You look at countries like uh, Israel, I think, who, who are sort of really uh, striving with that uh, industry as a, as a source of, of well, as a, as a tool for a lot of British businesses as, as well. So I think there's this big movement. Once again, they're finding their niche. They're finding their, their sort of specialisms, which they should be celebrating rather than trying to spread themselves too wide and too thin. Um, and I think to that point, that's probably where Britain is is kind of losing their way a little bit. It's interesting because uh, Britain has long, for a long time, been associated with uh, exercising soft power very effectively through culture, through media. Increasingly, China, uh, which you, you you referred to a moment ago, John, is, is is trying to do the same things, like the Belt and Road Initiative, funding infrastructure projects around the world, and 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 yet it doesn't seem to have had the desired effect. Certainly, in terms of their ranking in this year's um, country index. So uh, let's just hear again from uh, Conrad uh, Bird about soft power and the role that plays in branding a country and its uh, image to the rest of the world. Well, it's interesting because uh, there are a number of indexes that measure soft power, the so-called power of attraction. And um, the indexes we've seen recently from Portland actually place the UK at number one in the soft power index. Uh, So I I can say with confidence that I believe whether we're one or five or whatever, that we are actually a soft power superpower. And by that, I mean actually that we have enormous power of attraction through our creative industries, our content, our BBC, our film shows, our massive sporting heritage that attracts so many people to this country. So it is the ability to actually exploit those assets in the right way to 
bring in more people into this country, either as tourists or investors and so on. So the UK has a very, very strong soft power um, uh, profile around the world. And it's also the values that we maintain and we project around the world. And I think that actually that is going to be one of our, our most powerful assets as we go forward into the future to show that Britain is open, connected and welcoming to the world. So we've heard there about the importance of soft power and a recognition and an acceptance of that. But given that in one index, Britain emerges very high on its ranking in terms of soft power, and then uh, it's not done uh, anywhere near as well in, uh, in the future brand index, how does a country know how to convey that soft power, how, how to harness that and use that to its advantage in terms of the brand it wants to project when the outcomes can vary so wildly from one index to another? I mean, I think there are undoubtedly some obvious British brands or English brands or Scottish brands or whatever that are strong and, and project around the world. I mean, we recently did the rebrand of the English Football League to the, to the EFL because it travels well as the English Football League and means something. But I would argue that a lot of studies these days tend to focus on existing where we are today, a snapshot of, of the current situation. And I think the urgency for Britain is to stop looking back and start looking forward. And our study is a look at future potential. And by understanding people's perceptions around what a country now stands for in people's minds and, and the actual real life experience of, of that country, I think Britain as a brand has got a set of challenges that it needs to address top to bottom. You know, regardless of what might be happening at a political level, there is a, a general perception around Britain as a place that lacks, that's, that's falling behind on things like tolerance, that's falling behind in terms of value for money. So if I'm realistically, if I'm a student or if I'm a business like Panasonic looking to figure out where can I get uh, a valuable, um, where can I invest and build, build my headquarters in Europe, for example, where I can access a, a wealth of talent, where I can get a great value for money, where I can offer people a quality of life. It is no longer a guarantee that Britain will be high on that list these days because there is increasing competition from other places. But that said, what, I mean, what, what you've pointed to there are, are hard facts that actually if the currency has weakened because of political uncertainty... Political uncertainty is very hard to to, to sort out, and uh, a currency it is what it is. And so, other companies looking at Britain as a as a place that they may want to invest in will look at the hard facts, and and presumably, the country then has to highlight its other offerings rather than try and say that's not true or that's not actually representative. I think you need both because there are a lot of places that now are doing both, offering both. If I'm bringing inward investment into a, into a country and I want to do well when I'm there, why do I compromise? And I think you, Britain can't say we've got, we're strong on the soft side, but we can't, sorry about the political side and can't be guaranteeing you anything on the GDP side either. I mean, that's just not realistic. And I think it's a bit of a myth that gets peddled around Britain being all about soft power. I think you need to have soft power. You also need to offer people, you know, much more rational benefits as well and there are examples in our in our study of countries plenty of them the 19 above britain that are totally capable of uh, you know of offering very viable alternatives that aren't particularly far away from where we are within europe in which case rowan why does panasonic still have an interest in doing business in the uk when there are 18 19 countries above it in the ranking where they could go instead Mm. absolutely well from a creative point of view panasonic are here in london really to celebrate this idea of diversity. I think when you look at places around the world, there's, there's really nowhere better than, than London for Panasonic to understand and take learnings about Western culture to influence their products and processes back in, in Japan. 
I think that's something that we're, we're particularly seeing is sort of brands in Korea and brands in China slightly slicing off this market share of, of Japanese brands purely because of, of cost and also quickness of, of establishing technology. Panasonic needs to create an understanding of lifestyles and experiences that are going to be more aspirational to people rather than technology, which essentially people now can start to copy and develop themselves. So that is really why Panasonic are here in London and the UK, to celebrate the diversity from a creative point of view. See, see I love that, mm. if it stays true. You know, yeah. I, I love the idea of, of Britain being a, a multicultural, diverse society. That In order for that to happen, we, we, we better, you know, in terms of the brand being built, we are going to be more open to the world, then that has to be delivered so that that multiculturalism is carried on. Because the fear is is that if Britain, the brand, is perceived increasingly as a brand that doesn't welcome the world, that is seen as slightly intolerant, that does have a slightly precarious political situation, which to your point, Ben, we can't always control because we're in a democracy, then the ability to really genuinely reach out to the world and live up to that promise is going to be essential to companies like you because you're coming here for the, for the diversity. Absolutely. I think that is something that should be celebrated in, in Britain. It's sometimes tarnished a little bit, this mm. idea of it turning too multicultural as a, as a, as a city. There's a lot of bad precedents up coming around in immigration. Um, but actually, we should be celebrating that. We should be celebrating that as a, as a country, as a nation, that we can be, once again, from a from a a point of view as a brand that is inspiring the rest of the country, uh, rest of the world, with the types of products and services and experiences that we should be delivering. We should really be celebrating this idea of multiculturalism. Yeah, I mean, and, and I, look, for me, I think what's really at stake is, and to answer some of your earlier questions, Ben, is how do you build a country brand and how do you, how do you go forward? I mean, we talk in our survey a little bit about borrowing the ideas of placemaking. And I think if you're going to start introducing that thinking, which is essentially different approaches to build a country that thinks about people and the quality of life they want to have, not just the the way that you build public spaces around efficiency. You think about the totality of humans and human requirements and build like that. And I think that might become an interesting template for how we go forward. And it's, you know, the encouragement, you know, for Britain is to think in different ways about how they might evolve a brand Britain. Because up until now, I think we have lent a little bit too far, too much on the past. But looking forward, we can think about what type of people are we trying to attract? What sort of quality of life and happiness and, and well-being do we want to create for them? And therefore, what type of cities do we want to create? What type of access do we want to create? And what type of skills and education are we offering people? And I think, to some extent, there is an exciting future for Britain, but it's going to have to grasp these new ideas. And my only fear about Britain is we seem, at the moment, to be clinging on to the past too much. Mm. I wonder then, just picking up on that point, whether there's a trend of perhaps smaller more nimble countries able to turn around or improve or enhance their country brand more easily than some of the old juggernauts like uh, the US or, or you know Germany or the UK ones that have, have traditionally been very dominant but now find themselves being overtaken. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the exciting thing for challenger countries is that there's now a template and there's now a way to take on the, the big, the top dogs by not actually having to compete with them on, in one dimension, which is more the rational, the, the, the might side, the GDP side. But you can offer a broader suite of, of opportunity. And, and I think that is incredibly exciting. By turn, it's an interesting uh, watch out for countries that up until now have relied on GDP to make themselves strong, that they're going to need to start broadening their offer. So if we look across the world and we look at you know, China, which has got so much to offer, but it is, is connotated with strong politics, and you know, strongman politics, Russia, US, 
even some parts of, of Europe, the, the ability to actually compete, if you're only wanting to compete in that way, is, is going to be difficult. You're just going to have to double down on strength as opposed to being taken on in a, in a more diverse way with, with quality of life. Yeah, th- this is a really interesting point because, in fact, if you think of instead of countries as brands and brands as, as, as countries, when you look at big behemoth brands like Panasonic, it's very difficult or a challenge for us to try and have the same rate of change as these sort of startup businesses which are, are being crafted. And if you think of these small countries as essentially startup brands, they have the flexibility to, to grow and change a lot faster than a lot of these big countries who have a lot of public focus on. So to some extent, there's a lot of risk-free element to the, the, the change that these, these countries well, can, they're, they're, can have. They've got less to lose and they well, can take greater risks with, ab- with what they're doing. Absolutely. I, I just wonder then, based on what you said as well, would it make sense then for the, the bigger countries, the behemoths, to perhaps focus their branding around individual cities and really push, be it London or Manchester or, you know, in the US, pick a state and really uh, drive its image and its uniqueness and go smaller rather than trying to sell an entire nation to try and be all things to all people? I think that's, that's something which historically the UK has been, though of celebrating areas of the the country rather than it as as a whole so the north is always connected with being sort of the place of of manufacture london has obviously always been connected with the place of of finance kent the garden of england even if you go back even further but this idea of actually celebrating pockets of a country as their own unique entities almost the products of a brand see i you see i i I don't agree with that i mean I, i think it's we go the opposite i think that's the traditional way is to um, grow, a, grow a, you know, New York and is, is, is America for so many people. Um, London is, is, is Britain. And I think if you look at where future employers, future employees, future students, where, you know, look at the new younger generations coming through, they're inspired by the ability to have a very balanced life where I'm going to see my kids once in a while, um, I'm going to do a bit of work, I'm going to exercise, and, and having, offering people the choice and I think one of the things that's driving the big change in, 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 in the, the, the country world order is people choosing, people wanting to make decisions on their own grounds. But in the past, we were all conditioned to go to places of, of, of commerce because that's where everyone had to go. And we've suffered in terms of having to compromise on lifestyle, on, on paying exorbitant rents. And I think people aren't prepared to put up with that anymore. I think instead of having to follow the money, people are, the money's going to have to follow people. Yeah. And you, people are going to want to live wherever they want to live. And, you know, there's a great example of somebody in, who works in our, in our office in New York. She's one of our writers and she lives in St. Martin in, in the Caribbean. Now, apart from being very envious of that, and, and <laughs> really, I, want to know, I can't imagine how does why, she do yeah, it? I mean. <laughs> but uh, she lives in St. Martin. She's, she speaks to people every day as if she's in the room and, you know, gets to see her kids grow up and all the rest of it. And I think it's a very small example of how I think a lot of people want to live and how people will increasingly want to live when happiness and well-being and, and having that balance in your life is going to become more important. And I think it's a wake-up call to places mm, like London mm, and New York. Absolutely, yeah. I think, to my, my point of historically, these places being very siloed, very sort of ghettos of, of manufacture, of finance, of beautiful countryside, I think the role that technology has in society to actually allow for that flexibility of being able to do anything anywhere is a very exciting future. I mean, that's, that's why countries like 
hypothesize here, but countries like Slovakia and Eastern European countries are doing very well. It's because technology is actually allowing them to connect with other very big brands, big countries, to actually grow themselves. So I completely agree that actually there should be flexibility of being able to live anywhere that you want in a, in a, in a country. Um, just to, to maintain that, that sense of, of, of flexibility and quality of life. I mean, technology is a big enabler when it comes to quality of life, but it also, uh, and we're seeing a big race to have the next generation of mobile connectivity, 5G, super fast data uh, connections and, and so on. But it also can bring risks, as, um, as, as Conrad Bird points out. The UK is, is, is really leading the wave in AI, in technology, um, uh, and, you know, sort of digital economy. And I think that, um, all policymakers are, are going to have to work out the balance between the benefits of technology and the perceived threats of it. The fact that actually, um, uh, you know, we'll have smart cities, we'll have smart healthcare. There are huge benefits to be had with that. But of course, in an era perhaps where you have on one side, the internet giving you know huge benefits in, for instance, in health. You also have a rise in something like fake news, which actually breeds a certain amount of cynicism to the kind of uh, the technology that's coming, and also a threat and a fear. So it is a really, really big subject um, that we must actually benefit the the benefits of it and the opportunities it can bring, with also some of the perceived threats of it. And that is something that policymakers around the world, I think, will be uh, will you know, be having to work very hard to get the balance right. And Conrad makes an important point there, because a country in all good faith could say, right, people want a highly advanced, technologically out there, ahead of everyone else uh, country, whether it's uh, influencing their decision for where to go on holiday, where to live, where to study, where to invest. And they really push that. And it backfires because people are worried about privacy, about data security. Where does the balance lie when you're really pushing the technology element of your brand? Uh, and I think the example of Toronto is, is I think it's, I believe it's Toronto, where they uh, implemented a smart city model using loads of tech. And, and I think the people decided it was far too invasive and it's, they've now pulled it back. And I th- But I think that ultimately it's, it's about people and markets. And I think if you look at the people coming through in the future who've grown up with this technology and are more comfortable at managing it, I think there's a, there's a degree of, of they will manage it and it will happen through their control. I mean, I cannot underestimate or I cannot um, underemphasize how much the, the future generations are going to be taking control, not just of their lives, but the way that their lives are run. And that includes how they interact with technology. I think what's really interesting when you think and start talking about technology, A, it's an incredibly broad word, but the opportunities that technology is opening up for country country brands to be reappraised, I, you know, I point to Israel. You know, Israel is 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 people's views of Israel are changing not just because of, of tourism, but also because of the tech startups they have there, and a lot of what they have there is around techs linked to in, in environmentalism and and creating new environmental businesses. So I think technology is is one of those benign. You know, f- fundamentally, it's 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 neither one thing or the other. It's what we make of it. And I think you know, from a quality of life perspective, I think the people will people will people will manage it, but applying it to some of the problems that we face to change perceptions of countries is going to be almost endlessly exciting. I mean, one, I say China surprised me because I can't, can't believe China's so low on the survey. You know, 20, I think it's 29th in between Kuwait and Saudi Arabia, which is a surprise. But I think their ability to address some of the issues that they face around pollution and, and the environment will project them rapidly up. And that's all about technology. So technology is a very broad thing. Yeah. I think at, at Panasonic, obviously, Technology is very much at the heart of, of what we do. It, it's, it's been something that we've always 
been very proud of innovating within technology. But as we look forward into a society where technology is going to be ever more prevalent, we actually see spaces being more technologically enhanced than they have ever been before, but also more technologically invisible than they have ever been. I think that's quite an important thing is how, how do we in the future take a standpoint with technology and who takes a responsibility to make sure that the types of services, the types of products that are being designed don't interfere with people's everyday lives to a sense of there's this big technology pushback. And that's something which we're really interested in at, at technology, uh, at Panasonic, sort of understanding what really is meaningful living and how are families and people changing in countries and the types of new products and services that should be designed for those specifically. We touched on a point just a few moments ago about quality of life. I think both of you mentioned it. When people say, I want to live and work somewhere where I have a good quality of life. What do they mean by that? And and when a, a you know when a, a team or someone working on the the brand of a country says, okay, this is what people want. What should they do with that? How do they how do they create an image of a place that has quote unquote quality of life? I think whenever you think about buying or spending time with any brand, there is an image in people's minds about what how they think it will be. And your ability to deliver on the gap between what they think it will be and what it is like is the game. And that's the game for any, any brand in, 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 in anywhere in the world. And I think being able to, uh, from a country perspective, being able to really think about, uh, and this comes back to the, the, you know, the key point about borrowing from placemaking. And, that, and that's you know, one of the things we think is really kind of breakthrough We've done that classic thing of taking a really old idea and, and polishing it up. So placemaking has been around since the 60s, you know, and I talked about it a little bit earlier. But borrowing from how public spaces are created, designed and managed, you know, for, for real people that, who, are, who care about their happiness, who care about well-being, who still want to earn a living. Understanding all that, but applying it to the ultimate public space, arguably a country, is the challenge. And I think for people who create countries... Um, people who create country experiences, and that goes down for, you know, cities, people who manage cities, people who manage towns, councils, governments, actually businesses as well, you know, because businesses create towns these days as well, being able to really build. So if you think about, again, I don't want to hark back, but you think about some of the great, you know, the Cadbury's of this world who, who didn't just think about how do I make money, but I think about how do I build cities that people can sustain life in and, and have great lives. If I was going to borrow anything from Britain's past, I'd be looking at how those great industrialists didn't just build factories, they built towns. And I think borrowing some of that, that thinking is the future. Mm. I think quality of, of life for me is how do you sort of end up removing the irrelevant moments in people's lives to maximise the amount of time that they have to lead a, a meaningful full life. And I think that's where countries and brands have a responsibility of how can, how can we use technology to essentially take away the activities that people don't want to be doing so that they can lead a, the, the life that they want to enjoy. And that not only comes down to sort of, okay, this time is now free. What do I do with that time? To your point of, well, we need to make sure that the, the spaces around us enable us to lead a quality of life when we have that free time. So I think we're, once again, hard back to, to, to Panasonic, we're actually designing cities from scratch around the world, outside of Denver, outside of Berlin as well. We're actually designing it from the ground up and to some extent, by, by having the capabilities to influence all of the elements within that city allows for a, a much greater output from designing the hydrogen fuel cell power stations to the actual housing itself, to the actual products inside. I think that when you can start to have control over a little bit of everything enables a really high quality of life. I don't think technology should be driving 
the quality of life in the future. It should really be there to complement these experiences and lifestyles that people want to live. And I think it's definitely got to come from what users want first, rather than technology and innovation being pushed out into the, the, the industry from a just a, a sake of it point of view. I suppose a lot of the perceptions of a country are very much tied into the big brands that uh, a country exports or is, is very closely associated with. And you say to people, IKEA, they think Sweden. You know, you say Panasonic, they think Japan, Samsung, South Korea, VW, Germany, China, Huawei. But those last two examples, there are dangers for a country, aren't there, when it uses its brands as a strong part of its image? Because in the VW example, the emissions cheating uh, on the tests has backfired in a, in, a, in a big way. And the risk is that there's a fallout from that. And that was something that was within the company's control. With the Huawei example, that is beyond the company's control. That is because of a, a negative perception that's been created by the US, by, by Donald Trump. So is there as much of a benefit to using a country's headline brands as part of its image, or is there more of a risk these days? I guess it's a bit like using celebrities in advertising, you know, that you never know what's going to happen to them afterwards. And I, and I kind of turn that around. I think, I think what's interesting is, is I think the companies are strong because of often the heritage and the origin of the country. So Volkswagen, the reason why Volkswagen upset us so much is because Germany and VW are about reliability, and all of a sudden they did something, you know, or, or perceived to be, have done something, or actually did do something, I think I can say mm, that now. Mm. Um, they did something that was so out of kilter with people's sense of what Germanness was all about. And I think that that's why it's been such a big deal. I think if there was a, a, a more nefarious nation that was, happened to have a car brand that was fiddling around with its emissions, you kind of expect it, nod your head and carry on. But in the case of Huawei in China, I think that's a slightly different, it's a different story because... The um, the Apple thing of, of of design in California made in you know made in China was definitely all about California. But I think what's changed in China is made in China actually means something great now. I mean that they're perceived much more strongly in terms of technology because of brands like Huawei. And I think Huawei leads uh, uh, the shift and the change of, of of China. So they're not quite the same. I mean VW borrows from Germany. Huawei is leading China into the future. And I think probably the reason why people are so upset and, and exercised about Huawei is because of its Chinese connection. They, we wouldn't be talking about it if China, if the technology was, wasn't very good. If China wasn't better than Nokia and Ericsson or perceived to be, it wouldn't be being specified for these projects that, that it's being perceived to be, uh, it's been specified for. And uh, therefore the issues wouldn't arise, I guess. Ron, I want to bring you in on the, uh, the, the issue of, of the, the closeness between the big brands and, and how a country uses that as part of its image. But um, let's hear from uh, uh, Conrad Bird first on that very point. The Great Britain campaign is, is I, I hope, is a kind of masterclass in joining up. And you know, we've now got 20 government departments working uh, uh, working together on this campaign, and which now operates in 144 countries around the world. But we knew from the very beginning we couldn't do it alone. And it's the ability for business and British brands to join us that actually makes the sum greater than the, 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 sum, the, sum greater than the, the parts. Um, so very early on, we spoke to a lot of businesses. And the obvious benefit 
fit for a brand is especially those brands that um, are capitalizing on the nation origin of origin effects. The British Airways is the Virgins, the Mulberries, the Burberries, the um, Jaguar Land Rovers, the Minis. These are great British icons where part of their very strong sales pitch is actually they are British. So um, we worked uh, very, very closely with them and many others as, uh, as we've gone forward. And they both contribute to the Great Britain brand as well as extract value from it. And if you think that we are doing, um, we're currently around about 140 events uh, take place around the world every single month, which are great branded. Many businesses and British businesses contribute content to that and tell an even greater story about Great Britain than necessarily a, a government campaign could do on its alone. So business is absolutely vital. The content that they um, contribute to absolutely makes the great brand bigger. And we in turn, I believe, actually give them real added value, which is why so many businesses have joined us with the Great Britain campaign. With that in mind, Rowan, do you think in the Panasonic example that the Panasonic brand benefits Japan more or does Japan have a greater benefit to the Panasonic brand? Which way around? I think minds could sort of get out of both a little bit here, but I think they both complement each other immensely. It has to work hand in hand. For there to be, like in, in business, for there to be great value that comes out at the end of it, both parties have to have equal contribution to make sure that they're ensuring that they're protecting each other. So especially in, in Panasonic's case at the, at, at the moment, it, it's working very closely with government to essentially craft a very great image of Japan at the Olympics. So we're supporting and crafting a very good marketing campaign around Japan and communicating that to the wider world. But... Yeah, I, I think it's, it comes down to communication as well. It's just making sure that the, the brands are familiar. If, if you're using the country as part of your, your marketing to the, the wider world, it's making sure that there's this sort of consistent communication that what you're selling as a brand aligns with what your, your country is also. And I think to your point, countries, uh, the Huawei example, before this all happened with Huawei, there was always sort of a a question over data in China anyway. So as a brand to be pushing the story of of data and 5G, it's, it, you're already treading on a very fine line because it's very susceptible to go wrong quite quickly. I, it comes down to, to trust as well. As well. I, I, think, I think countries are, for the first time in a long time, quite susceptible to making quite rapid changes and declines. And I think we, we live in a slightly more polarised world now albeit, you know, some would say a world of fake news, but the truth is, in a very short period of time, countries can lose their standing. And you run yeah. a great risk. Of but in which case, is that not a, a, a huge risk yeah. for, for brands to associate themselves with the country? Absolutely. And I, I think in the example of, in Comrade's example, I understand completely the logic of going into that. But I wonder whether they'd still do that had they known what the way Britain is likely to be perceived for the next few years. And I think wrapping yourself so overtly in the Union Jack, as a lot of that, those type of campaigns do, has a huge risk because you are essentially trading some of your credibility and equity on the, on the um, precariousness of, of, in this case, a country. It could be a celebrity in, in other circumstances. I think a smarter way to do it, or a, more, a potentially more future-proof way to do that, is to get a little bit deeper and understand how to more subtly draw out the nuances or the values and attributes of a country as opposed to being overt about the flag and, the, and, and, and more obvious examples. Muji is a great example of that. You know, if you walk into a Muji, it doesn't have a Japanese flag everywhere, but this kind of Japanese-ness oozing, in, oozing through that store, yes. you know, in the, in the way it's laid out, in the colours they use, in the structuring of, and, and the designs. 
it just feels Japanese, but Japanese enough to not be susceptible to any precariousness that might affect Japan in the future, and, who, and you know, and who's to say that it won't? Yeah, you know? and that, that's that's something which we're we're sort of in a state of flux at the moment. We're we're trying to establish ourselves as more of this aspirational brand on a global level, trying to sort of challenge against the the. Koreas and the Chinas of the world who've started to nibble away at a bit of a market share. But the point of Muji of what is Japanese-ness for us is a very, very big uh, question to answer because you overcook it and you become a gimmick. But if you get that balance right, it's sort of, we don't want to be a stereotype of Japan. And I think that's having a great understanding of what your country is, is when you can start to align yourself even more closely with what what the country stands for. Going to the heart of that, I suppose, are heritage brands and brands that are very steeped in a country's tradition, its culture, its values. And I, I think as we can hear from Conrad once again, that's very much a part of, of building a country's brand as well. At the very beginning, we, we were interested to see whether um, we could shift views and perceptions of the UK away from being a heritage Park where it's, it's viewed in some ends to actually a modern, thriving, technological able, uh, enabled uh, country. And I, I, I've always had, I've always felt that the Britain we can uniquely do both. I mean, um, you just simply have to walk down, let's say, the streets of Oxford University to walk past an 11th century building where they're actually putting um, nanotechnological solutions together. And I think um, heritage and leading edge creativity and innovation sit very, very well in the Great Britain story. We have a very proud past and we actually have a very very strong future and I think also um, audiences can can um, discern between the two so tourists can actually uh, value the UK for its for Stonehenge for other uh, ancient monuments and area but actually understand that also a lot of technological uh, innovation happens here as well so they do sit very very comfortably together in my view it was something we were a little concerned out at the beginning because of the hypothesis. If you talked about heritage, did that make people think that you were looking in the past? I think that uniquely, actually, in Great Britain, people understand our island story and they understand that we're both old and proud of our age and we've innovated in the past and now in the future, actually, we're going to go forward together. So they sit comfortably. John, do you think that's right? Can you portray an image of having heritage and history and deep values as well as coming across as a, a, a country that is forward-looking and innovative. Absolutely, as long as heritage doesn't slip into nostalgia. So recently, we, um, we've been working for a long time with Bentley. You know, Bentley Cars is, a, is the epitome of old world Britain. But actually, ben- the modern expression of Bentley is about luxury engineering. It's about borrowing from the past, but also projecting a much more exciting vision of the future that has got a little bit of heritage in the past. What they haven't done is tell ancient stories about the history of the company and, and, and stay stuck in an, a world of nostalgia. And I think that's the big difference. Don't get stuck in nostalgia. I also, what, I th- also think what's interesting is if you play it on a country level, brands these days can actually play with their country of origin versus how they might want to express themselves in other parts of the world. Budweiser, for example, who we work with, you couldn't get anything more American in America. But if you go and see where Budweiser is going in China, it's got the ability there to completely reimagine itself using, you know, Conrad mentions AI and tech. It's how do we embed, how do we make AI and tech part of the beer experience when you go out for an evening? Well, we've got a market in China where not only is it a, a place to pilot that experience, but also a, a consumer that's up for it, a consumer that's interested in 
Budweiser, which I don't associate with traditional bonding beer, beer occasions, but is much more about a modernity and excitement. So there's a permission to do that. So it's, it's always a question of playing on heritage in a way that's very constructive and, and forward-looking and, and embracing where the world is going as opposed to nostalgic for the past. My slight fear about Britain is we are geared to... I think we're in a nostalgia mode right now, and I think the challenge for all British brands is to make sure you don't slip into nostalgia. And I just wonder, you know, Conrad was saying that Britain uh, uniquely combines that heritage and the forward-looking tech. Um, I, I wonder whether perhaps the Japan example underlines that it's not just Britain that does that. I mean, Japan, you have the oldest, I believe, the oldest hereditary monarchy in the world, and we saw the ceremony around the, the change of emperor, and yet it is strongly associated with, um, you know, friends who visited. Uh, one of the things that they send me... Uh, messages about is oh you'll never believe how high tech the toilets are in the hotel you yes, know, they yeah, do, yeah. do everything short of doing your <laughs> accounts for yeah, you yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and they seem to combine that I mean jo- joking aside they seem yeah. to combine yep. that balance of, of hereditary uh, uh, that balance of history but also forward looking it is and it does come down to I think points earlier John, it comes down to, to balance you can't blur those two elements too close together because it starts to create a very um, confusing situation. I think they've got Panasonic Studios, for example, are, are based in Kyoto. And in Kyoto, you've got many temples. You've got a lot of heritage there. You've got a lot of fantastic old architecture. But by Panasonic being there's a very tech-enabled business, it's actually where it originated from in that region. You've, you've got this perfect mix, essentially. I think that's what Japan's actually got quite right. It's got a great mix of, of Japanese culture, heritage, not nostalgia, and technology pushing forward. In fact, actually, it's, it's a situation that Panasonic as a brand is in at the moment, let alone a, a country. How so? So not sort of priding ourselves on us being a heritage brand, us something that you grew up with as a, as a child, your parents grew up with, you took it on, you inherit that sort of brand in your home. That's something which we're consciously trying to, to avoid. Sort of how do you craft a more aspirational brand image by not falling into the, the realms of us being the technology company, how do you change to be someone who's actually crafting lifestyles and experiences that people are aspiring for? So I guess what, what I'm sort of saying is that actually you've, you've got to keep two very separate to each other for them to work, but not let that heritage, like you say, fall into this idea of nostalgia. I, th- I think so, if you go to different cities around the world, if you go to Seoul, if you go to Stockholm, if you go to Istanbul, I think there are examples of places that are as adept at Britain at melding old with new. And I think to some extent, because they're not burdened by a past in the way that we sometimes can be in Britain, they're actually slightly more risk-taking, slightly more progressive and willing to try things out. Um, And I think that that's bringing that energy and that vibrancy and the the risk-taking into Britain, into the melding the past with the future, could be a really exciting way forward. I I worry sometimes where we've got such a tradition here and and so many rituals and, and, and ceremonies set down that we'll always be slightly held back and slightly keep our keep it nice but undoubtedly if we become a truly multicultural place and we're inviting all the talents in and you know we're willing to be open then there's no reason why britain can't be hugely competitive how does politics play into all of this because a country can brand itself and position itself and then uh, a referendum like the brexit one can throw question marks over everything from people's right to live and work through to traveling uh, visas and and, and so on and uh, the uh, perceptions of how open and welcoming a country is and you know you take the US example where politics very polarized there's a, a, a president there who will tweet 
uh, and, and policy can change very rapidly and unpredictably. How does a country find its brand affected by the politics? And to an extent, is there much they can do to counter any possible negative fallout from any of that? I would answer that by saying it's the ability to be multifaceted, the ability to have a variety, you know, many, many parts of your story. Because you're right, you can't control everything all at one time. And this is the challenge that brands face always. So you need to be able to mitigate when something goes up, something else. When something goes down, something else needs to come up. And I think that in the, in the case of the US, it is actually, it, 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 is a, it is a fairly sad situation that it has been purely defined. A nation of that breadth and diversity is being defined right now, or certainly in the world's media, by what's going on in terms of the politics. We don't look at the politics per se, and we don't look at causal links of things. But if I look at the US as a brand, the US, you know, that we all know, and even the US we don't know, we know it's broad and diverse, but what's coming through is being dominated by one thing. And I think any brand doesn't want to be dominated by one thing. You want to have, a di- uh, you want to have breadth, because the world is an unpredictable place, and you need to be able to play different, different hands. From what you've uh, said, it sounds like a, a huge undertaking to, uh, to brand a country and to do it well, which begs the question, why bother? Why do it? What are the benefits? Let's hear again from Conrad Bird. My view um, around this is that if nation branding is to succeed, it has to be uh, consistent and of high quality and sustained over a long time. And to that for that aim, you have to understand what is the the value of it. And I would actually, um, in terms of the Great Britain brand, we put the value down as actually generating jobs and growth for this country. So positive perceptions of the UK as being innovative and open and welcoming are very, very good. But those perceptions have to go somewhere. They have to actually um, move audiences to consider the UK above other countries in a competitive uh, situation. So the fact that we've had record tourism since 2011, that we um, remain um, number one in Europe for foreign direct investment, that we're still number two in the world for attracting international students to the UK. Those are the real measures that actually we believe the great brand, which is a nation brand, actually really help us achieve. So, And it also sustains the campaign over time. So for me, the value is very much a combination of, of reputation, but the hard economic evidence that actually shows that this brand is um, paying the country back. Because remember, I, you know, we are funded by the taxpayer, and we need to have a return on investment for the taxpayer. And that is a very good point, isn't it? Building a country's brand costs money, and the value has got to be shown. Do you, do you agree there with Conrad that what you're looking for to, to get out of a country's brand, what you're looking to get out is jobs, growth and visitors? I, I'd agree with that, but I'd go further. I think that's all important and, and, and wealth creates you know happiness, I guess. But I think when you look at the, the opportunity for um, the idea of a country to shape the future, to shape, you know, the way people live their lives, it can be a far more fundamental and more profound, a profound way to, to think about the way the future will happen. If you are a highly tolerant society, if you believe in equality, if you're promoting diversity rights as a nation, then that will move us forward, not just in economic terms, it moves us forward into the in, into a much more positive place as a, as a world. And I think we face enough challenges as, 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 a, as an organisation. I'm getting quite evangelical now. We face, <laughs> we face enough challenges as a nation. It, you know, nations are big things where they can touch a lot of lives. You know, and, and people look at each other. Nations look at each other. They aspire to be like other nations. So if you create, you are great nations out there creating great examples of how to envision a life that's worth living and, is, and, and gives people complete happiness and well-being as well as a, an income, 
um, which I, I don't disagree with content is important, then you can actually begin to make some really lasting changes. Rowan, where do you think the, the benefit comes from building a country's brand? Firstly, I think to, to build a, a country as a brand needs to have people who are familiar with building brands. As I, th- I think actually you can be quite out of... I think the current setup is actually sort of a little bit out of touch. I think design can actually play a huge part in influencing how a country is constructed. And I'd love to see sort of the process of design implemented at a, at a higher level because essentially design is all about understanding what people's needs and requirements are and acting on them to, to craft better solutions. And I think that's exactly the situation that we're in at the moment. We need to understand what people's problems are and delivering on that. And I just, yeah, I, I really don't think that's, that's something which is being tackled at the moment. I mean, I'd also say things like tackling the big problems we face as a, as a population around things like climate change and all that sort of thing. We can actually play a role in that bigger, that, that bigger higher order place as well. And I, and I think it's the two things together. I mean, I think you have to have accountability. You have to deliver, you have to offer value for money. Of course you do. But at the same time, if you, you know, think of the scale. I mean, if, if you can change the China brand the way it's perceived globally, that's, that's you know, over a billion people suddenly moving in the right direction, moving in a way that is, is positive and, 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 and creating a better example of how to live, then that's going to have a knock-on effect to the rest of the world. So it's quite exciting, you know, and I think the nation, nation branding has, a, has a, a commercial side, but it also, I think, has a demonstrable, you know, should be inspiring. It should be inspiring each other. I, I think one of the key things about our, our studies is we're not standing here saying Slovakia is going to be bigger than America, what we are saying is that these are great examples of countries who've defied their natural position in the, in the World Bank ranking by doing other things other than thinking about their GDP. And I think if you take the lessons from that, then big nations can become stronger because as well as alongside their might in the world, they can think about broader things other than their beyond politics, for example. And similarly, nations that never competed can suddenly be a player in the world and, and punch above their weight because they're thinking about how the world works in a, in a broader sense as well. So that, I think country branding, I, you know, I, I did, you know, when I first came into branding, I was slightly sceptical about country branding. It sounded a little bit kind of esoteric. Mm. But when you begin to break it down, you begin to see that it actually can have a far more manifest impact on our lives in a much more tangible way that will have a knock-on benefit to, to the world at large. Just before we finish, I'd, I'd like each of you to give me a, a country that you think we should be watching that's perhaps going to break through maybe not so high in this year's rankings but for whatever reason is likely to really uh, improve its brand and, and, and skyrocket in the next few years either one that you've looked into through the index or one that you visited or had experience mm-hmm. of nigeria i think nigeria is going to surprise people um, massive nation focused you know really getting switched on to the environmental impact that they've had in the past and seeing the commercial opportunity. I, you know, the government's issuing greenback bonds to promote environmental uh, technology. And I, I think if that, that's a great example of a country that suddenly makes a change, the size of that population, their ability to impact the world around them and also be an inspiration for other countries around the world from a place you never expected, that's a story. I actually think, um, even though it's, it's a much talked about country, I think the India has an amazing amount of capability to craft itself as a brand conveying itself to the wider world. Much like China's actually sort of tried to specialise itself into a certain sort of language that it shares with uh, the wider world within design, I think India can do exactly the same. Um, because at the moment, it's, when you think of it as a, as a brand, it's quite neutral. There's, you've got sort of no real opinion on India as a country when it's delivering products 
or services or experiences. So how how can they craft themselves as a very sort of uh, uh, what, how can they craft their voice to to broader countries? Obviously, there's a lot of companies and businesses interested about entering India and setting up themselves in those uh, in those areas to try and gain market share. But I think for me, it's just how can India have its own voice to share with uh, the wide world? Thank you to John Tipple, Global Chief Strategy Officer at Future Brand. Rowan Williams, creative lead at Panasonic Design London, and also for the contributions from Conrad Bird, director of the Great Britain campaign at the Department of International Trade. And thank you for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the discussion. So if there's anything you'd like to contribute, you can do that on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram, all of which are linked from the top of the website at csuitepodcast.com. You'll also find on there all our previous shows and supporting show notes, as well as links to where you can subscribe for automatic downloads of each episode through your favourite podcast app. The URL, if you'd like to get a copy of the Future Brand Country Index, is www.futurebrand.com. And finally, if you'd like to get in touch with this show, you can do that via our contact form at csuitepodcast.com. But for now, from me, Ben Bland, thanks for listening and goodbye.